Jesus, we thank you for your shed blood. It is in your shed blood that we stand. Jesus, we thank you that your sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy the penalty that was due our sin. Thank you, Jesus, that we can draw near to the throne of grace, that we can enter the presence of God as friends, though we were once your enemy. Thank you, Jesus, that we have found the word made flesh in Jesus. Thank you that we have the written word of God, that we may know your great love more assuredly. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to live holy lives in this present evil age. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would uh, turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. This morning our study continues to draw us to the center of the universe, to the throne of God. We will first read the passage under consideration in its entirety. We will then pray the Holy Spirit to illuminate the passage for understanding, asking the Holy Spirit to inflame our hearts and love, asking the Holy Spirit to move our will in faithful obedience to Him. Then we will dissect the passage and we will make application. So as you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word from Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne, with four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, give us the help of your Holy Spirit to understand what is the height, the depth, and the weight of your love toward us. Guide us, Holy Spirit, to know the truth and to know the worth of Jesus, his death and resurrection. Fill us, Lord, with awe and wonder that through Christ we are counted worthy. We expectantly desire that this morning you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is speaking to the church. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen. So, I posed a couple of questions this morning to get us started, to think about this book of Revelation, to think about it as a whole. Is the book of Revelation mostly a book about future events, or is it primarily a manual for spiritual warfare? Is Christ's rule and reign yet to be seen? When did the last days begin? And how we answer these questions will either hinder us or will assist us in understanding this mysterious book. With great fear, about a year and a half ago, I embarked on a journey to attempt to preach through this uh, mysterious book. I had much fear, so much fear that I almost said, no, you know, I can't do this. A friend of mine and I worked through the book together, 
And I stated at the time, as we had gone through this book, that I could begin this book at chapter 5 and verse 6. If I was to begin thinking about this book, I would want to begin at chapter 5 and verse 6. I saw between the throne with four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. The reason I say that is that I've come to understand as studying this book that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ depicted in this scene is that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the depth of God's love for sinners. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, humans who have missed the mark of God's perfect standard, they discover their worth in the Lamb slain and in the Lamb resurrected. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is what the entirety of Scripture points to. From the beginning, we're, we're drawn from Genesis to look forward to the death and resurrection of Christ that we find our worth, that we find the complete plan of God comes to its fruition in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's what the entirety of the scriptures point to. It's the promises of God. They are summed up in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Christian's confidence is only and always in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the, Paul, the Apostle Paul declares this truth in 1 Corinthians 2.2. He says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. See, it is in the death of Christ that we find worth, we find our power, and we find confidence. I will show from our text that the death of Jesus Christ inaugurates the kingdom of God. I will show that the death of Jesus makes Him the authority to execute the judgments of God and to bring about the promised return of God's people to the paradise of heaven. The structure and the plan of the book of Revelation could be summarized as this. Brian and I were talking about this this morning. Is like, could we just, you know, boil it down? What does the whole book say? What is the whole book's meaning? And I, I am quoting here from J.K. Beale. I think this is a great summary of what the book of Revelation says. The sovereign God and his Christ in the act of redeeming and judging creation brings them glory, which is intended to motivate the saints to worship God and reflect his glorious attributes through obedience to his word. I'm going to repeat that again. The sovereign God and his Christ in the act of redeeming and judging creation brings them glory, which is intended to motivate the saints to worship God and to reflect his glorious attributes through obedience to his word. So now, let us turn our attention to this scene in heaven in verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. So I'm going to take us on a long journey to explain this and to get us to understand what is going on here. So God had promised our first parent, Adam, that he would reign over all the earth. And Adam forfeited this promise. Adam and all of us who have been born of a woman inherited his nature, 
That is to say that all of humanity has neglected the promise of God in favor of autonomy or self-rule or self-government. We became a God then unto ourselves and devastatingly through this corruption, through his corruption called sin in the Bible, no one is worthy of the promise of God. And Paul declares the condition of sinful man born of Adam in the book of Romans. In chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And in chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, it says, Both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. I love another version of this. It says that they have become worthless. They have become worthless. In chapter 5, verse 12 of Romans, Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sin. In verse 18 of chapter 5, it says, Through one offense, the result was condemnation to all mankind. This is our position. And in the right hand of God, who sits on the throne, is a book. And so after the, the last few weeks, we have kind of looked at chapter 4. We've looked at the attributes of God. We've looked at the attributes of the one who sits on the throne. We have understand that the one who sits on the throne here, he holds a book in his right hand. And he who holds the book is described in three ways. He's described as pure, clear, without fault, like an unblemished diamond. His brilliance is perfection. Secondly, he who sits on the throne holds the book in his right hand. He is described as a fire. A fire who is demanding blood for those who transgress him. Finally, he holds the book, he who holds the book in his right hand, while seated on the throne, is described as merciful and the keeper of a promise, of his promise to humankind. This is he who holds the book in his right hand. He who rules, rules both heaven and earth. He who is matchless in his perfection. He who is exacting and righteous in all of his judgments. He who is authoritatively the center of the universe. And in his right hand, he holds a book. Now, you might ask, what sort of book is it? What is this book? Well, to begin to answer this question, many uh, Bible scholars have uh, taken chapter 3 and verse 5 and declared that this is the book of life, that this is the book of those named. When we consider the rest of the book of Revelation, though, I want us to consider this. The unfolding judgments that follow from this scene in chapter 6 and beyond, we see that the book is something different, a little bit more than just those named in the book of life. More aptly, chapter 4, verse 1 gives us insight into what sort of book this is because of its purpose, of the purpose of the vision. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. I'm going to show you what must take place after these things. That's what's in the book, is that which much must take place after these things to show what must soon take place. And the Apostle John has in his mind uh, the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel as he's thinking about what he sees when he sees this book. In Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 10, it says, When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. 
Daniel 7, 9 through 10 says this, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. And further in Daniel, it says, The vision of the evenings and the mornings, which has held true, but the vision is secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. In 12, uh, Daniel chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, As for me, I heard, but I could not understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of all of these events? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. So this gives us an idea of what this book is, is it's the end time unfolding of the things that must take place after this. And we're going to discover what after this is. The book has been sealed from the time of Ezekiel and Daniel, and the time is near. And indeed, the time has come to unfold God's final plan for redemption and judgment. And the fact that, that it is sealed with seven seals is of great help to us in understanding what this book is as well. We've seen that the number seven is often associated with completeness. The seals indicate uh, what it's like in documents that were of that time. Documents of that time uh, were sealed. That is, that they were a legal document. That this was a legal document. Kind of like a last will and testament. The will of God being unfolded. A sevenfold complete will of the one who holds it in his hand. The book is best understood as containing God's plan of judgment and redemption. For the church, the people of faith, we should view the book uh, that it, it, in it, it contains not only the, the plan of God's justice at the end of time, but also of his covenantal promise to return mankind to paradise that was lost in Adam. Since the book contains a covenantal promise of God to humankind, and although Adam neglected the promise, it begs this question, one in the likeness of Adam must open the book. There's one like Adam, one like Adam, like one of us, that must open the book. And look at verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look in it. So the question is here, who is worthy to open the book to even look upon it? And the bigger question in, the pa in this passage by implication is this, who, born in the likeness of Adam, is worthy to execute the final judgment of God against evil and to bring the plan of God's covenantal promise to restore humankind? Who is worthy to open the book? And the answer from heaven and from that perspective in that moment is no one. There's not one on earth. No one does good. No one seeks after God. There's not one. There's not one born of Adam that is worthy to open the book, that is worthy to execute the judgment of God, that is worthy to bring about the salvation of God's people, to to fulfill the covenantal promise of God. There's not one. Again, consider the words of Paul to the Romans in chapter 5, verse 12. Through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. So death spread to all mankind because all sinned. 
And as I said in verse 18, through one offense, the result was condemnation, condemnation to all mankind. And so no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Look at verse 4 with me. This is John. And then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. John here is heartsick and undone. Hope is lost. The apostle knows this, that if the seals are opened, then the universe will be ruled by God and that God's redemptive purpose will triumph over evil. John knows that if the seals are open, God will work for good for his people through the suffering that we endure in this present evil age. It makes sense of evil. If someone can open the book, the, the problems and the, and the cares of this world, the things that weigh me down will make sense because God is working out his plan. If one is worthy to open the book and unfold his plan of judgment against evil and of redemption of humankind, my suffering makes sense. And now he's there and he sees this and there's no one in heaven, no one on the earth, no one under the earth that is able to open the book. He is there in that moment without hope. If no one is worthy to execute the plan of God to redeem mankind, then suffering evil serves no good purpose. Satan will win. Justice will be left undone and unchecked. In this moment in the scene, John is absent of the hope that he had already placed in Christ. As far as he can see in this particular moment, for this moment he, 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 there's no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth is found worthy. And for this moment, for him, all hope is lost. And I ask us this, where will you find hope in this present evil age? Are you hoping that your righteous deeds will outweigh the bad? In the mind of God, your righteousness are compared to filthy rags. So you can't rest on that hope. Romans 3.12 again tells us that they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt or worthless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. In these evil days, the big question is, who will be able to stand against the world forces of this present and increasing darkness? Who will stand against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places? If no one is able to bring to you the redemption of God, and the restoration of humankind and to execute justice against evil, what will you do? Where is your hope? Because you have to understand this. You cannot do it. You are not worthy. Your faithful parents or grandparents can't do it for you. They are not worthy. Where is hope? Your pastor can't do it for you. He is unworthy. There's a promise seen in Isaiah of a day when hope will be sure, when the, a day when the gloom of darkness will be lifted. Isaiah 29, 11 through 14. The entire vision will be like to you words of a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read this, he will say, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read this. And he will say, I cannot read. Then the Lord said, because of this people who draw near with their words and they honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. 
and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with these people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of the wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. And on the day, the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. There's a promise of hope. And this promise is coming on this day as we see it in heaven. In this picture of this vision, the day of hope has come. John begins to weep. He's undone because no one is worthy to open the book. And then one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. The elder proclaims to John, hope has come. The promise of God has been fulfilled. One has come as one of us, and he lived like none of us. And John, you know him. John, you know who he is. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. He has overcome. He has overcome. There is one worthy of the titles, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, worthy of the everlasting kingdom promised to David. Zechariah 3.8 says this, Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I'm going to bring in my servant the branch. God brought forth this day the branch that was promised in Jeremiah's day. Behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah 23, 5, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king, act wisely, and do justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah 33, 15 says, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. You see, what Adam couldn't do, the second Adam has come. The one who was promised... The lion of the tribe of Judah, he has overcome. The one who is the root of David, the everlasting kingdom, he has come. And John, you know him. John, you know him. The overcomer is worthy of opening the book and of breaking its seals. Romans 5.19 says, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many will be made righteous. Hope has come, declares the elder to the Apostle John. Justice will be executed, church. The universe is ruled by God. God and His Christ are triumphing. They are, they are winning right now against evil forces everywhere. God is winning. We live sometimes as if God is not in control of all the things that are going on in our world, all the evil that is out there. I, I would suppose that all of us here can, can think about this and, and think about the world that's going on around us. And it is much darker than it was when you were young. Some things that are accepted as good now would never have been spoken of in that way when I was a kid, ever. And we see this and we think, Oh, God is not winning. Actually, the plan is unfolding. Actually, the book has been opened. Actually, God is redeeming a people for himself in the midst of all of that. Everything is unfolding according to plan. Because there was one worthy to open the seals, to execute God's plan of 
of judgment against evil and to execute God's plan of redeeming a people and restoring them and bringing them back to himself. When we think about this, God and his church, they are working to preserve God's church, that God and his Christ are winning, and they are working together to bring and preserve his church and the promise of future restoration. This has been inaugurated. This has begun. Deliverance from the bondage of sin has been secured for us. The snake-crushing, devil-defeating Savior has overcome. I would ask us this. Do you have ears to hear? Do you have eyes to see? Have you been born again to this living hope? John is then given eyes to see the worthy one. Looking at verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out unto all the earth. The wording in our passage describes, describes the lamb as if standing. It is actually better tra translated like this. The lamb standing, having been slain. Standing not as if slain, but the slain lamb is standing before the throne of God. A human person had to open the book because the promise was made to humanity. But no person was found worthy to open the book because all sinners uh, stand underneath the judgment of God. Christ was found worthy because he suffered the final judgment as an innocent, innocent, sacrificial victim on behalf of his people. The Lamb's overcoming resides not only in the fact that the Lamb continues to stand, but he stands executed for the sins of his people. If you want to know where you stand, look to the throne and see the Lamb standing as slain. That's your worth. That is your worth on display. It's our constant reminder. Christ died for me. I find my worth only in him crucified, as Paul would say. That is all I am determined to know is Christ and him crucified. Upon his death and resurrection, having died, he executed the perfect will of God. He came as one of us. He lived like none of us, and he died instead of us. Is he worthy? Look upon the throne of the, and see the one who died. See the one who rose again. See the one standing there, slain for sinners. I remember a time when uh, somebody in, an, in another church was talking to me about uh, how they had, in their church, they had told them that they couldn't talk about the blood anymore, that it was too gruesome for people to hear. And I say, if you want to know your worth, look upon the lamb slaughtered for your sin. If you want to know the cost, if you want to know the cost of your rebellion against God, Look to heaven and see the Lamb standing, slain for sinners. If you want to know that you have victory, notice this, that the Lamb slain for your sin is standing. He is standing. And what is he standing? He's standing in the gap. He's standing for you. He's standing for me. 
If in this evil age you are made to stand, you will stand in the blood of Jesus Christ. You will stand in the bloody Savior who died for you, whom God raised from the dead, who executed the perfect will of God. He, he is worthy. And there you will find your worth and your confidence. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He penned these words declaring the only worth that I might find in myself is Christ and him crucified. The only way I can justify myself to my family, the only way I can justify myself to my friends, to my co-workers, the only way I can justify myself to my enemies is Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the only way I can justify myself. The only way I can be made to stand is the one who stands crucified for my sin, whom God raised from the dead. When I need to know my worth, I look upon the worthy one who's standing slain before the throne of God. The one to who this vision was has given already, he, he declared our worth in the lamb slain. Remember in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If I want to know that I am loved, I must look to the cross and see the lamb slain. I must look to heaven and see that the lamb slain didn't stay dead, that God raised him up and that he stands worthy. He stands worthy to execute God's judgment on earth and to bring about the covenantal promise of eternity for you and for me. If I want to find my worth, I must look at the bloody lamb standing before the throne victorious. And I have said before, and I will say this again, that the path to glory is paved with suffering. And it's declared clearly in this picture that the worthy one, the worthy one who was declared worthy, he was declared worthy when? When was he declared worthy? When he died for sinners. When did God's plan start to be executed? When he died for sinners. Where is our hope? Our hope is in that Christ died for my sin. That he is the right judge. That he is the only one in which I can find worth. He is my only, he is my only hope. He is our only hope, friends. He's our only hope in this whole world of evil that goes on around us. Our only hope is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Remember the prophet Isaiah foretold of the day when we would find our worth by looking upon the lamb who was slain for our sin and raised for our justification? You should draw our minds and think about what Isaiah said in chapter 53, verses 7 through 11. Uh, what it says of this lamb slain for us was standing before the throne worthy to open the seals and open the book to execute God's plan. Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was with the rich man in his death because he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. 
If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. See, the lamb slain is the one who bore our iniquities, and he's standing before the throne victorious. Is the lamb slain and risen from the dead worthy? The description of the lamb who was slain is described as having seven horns and seven eyes full of the Spirit of God. Again, this is the number of completion. As we look at verse 6, notice this, that the lamb slain has seven horns and seven eyes and out of the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. This is proclaiming his worth. This is proclaiming that the the one slain is worthy to open the books, to, to bring about the justice of God, to bring about the restoration of his people. He's worthy. These seven horns, these seven eyes full of the spirit of God, that he is the authority of heaven. He's been given authority through his death and resurrection. He is declared worthy. Deuteronomy 33, 17 tells us of of these horns, of this idea of authority. As the firstborn of his ox, majesty is his, and his horns are the horns of the wild ox. With them he will push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth. And those are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and those are the ten thousands of Manasseh. The idea is that with the horn is the authority to direct all of humankind. In, in Psalm 89, verse 17, it says, you are the, For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. He is the Almighty. The seven horns declare that He is the Almighty. They declare that He is all-powerful. The seven eyes declare that He is the all-knowing, all-seeing, fullness of the Spirit of God. That He is worthy to execute all that the book unfolds. All that the book is about to say. He is the fullness of the Spirit of God, and He's standing as slain. He is worthy. And now when we look at verse 7, He came and He took the book out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. The scene in heaven begs this question. When was He declared worthy to carry out the decrees of God? When was He declared worthy to execute justice on the earth? When was He declared the one who would bring about the redemption and the restoration of God's people? Upon his death and resurrection, Jesus was declared worthy. And he received authority to rule and reign in heaven and on earth. Upon his death and resurrection, he received in himself the curse for those who would repent and believe. He received his authority from the throne of God when he atoned for sin and when he satisfied God's wrath for sinners. He received authority upon his resurrection from the dead when he authoritatively takes the scroll from the one who sits on the throne. He's declared worthy to execute the decrees of God and to redeem a people for himself. I want us to pray this passage as we close in Ephesians chapter 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the rich riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the boundless greatness of his power toward us who believe. They are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. Listen to this. When he raised him from the dead, 
And he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. He put all things in subjection under his feet, and he made him head over all things to the church, which is is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Is Christ worthy? Where will you find your worth? How do you make sense of this present evil age? Where do you find hope in this present evil age? Hope is in Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain for my sin. I can know a whole lot of things about a whole lot of theology and a whole lot of the Bible. And Paul, being probably the greatest theologian ever, says this quite simply, I long to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He knows what his worth is. He knows the worthy one. Our worth is in the Lamb slain for our sins.